Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. In 2016, Jordan Peterson, a relatively obscure professor of psychology, released several videos on YouTube making critical remarks on political correctness and related political legislation. This would kick off a meteoric rise in fame, with sold-out live shows, podcasts, television interviews, and a worldwide best-selling book. Along with his newfound fame, however, came a lot of criticism— much of it from progressive commentators, most recently in the form of Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. The book features several contributions from four authors, as well as an introduction by Slavoj Žižek, who debated Peterson in 2019. It engages with Peterson's core ideas while offering critical analysis from leftist perspectives. The contributors are as follows. Ben Burgess has a PhD in philosophy from the University of Miami. He is a science fiction writer whose work has appeared in publications such as Tor.com and in Prime Books. Burgess now teaches at Rutgers University and is also the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. Conrad Hamilton is a doctoral student at Paris 8 University, currently developing a thesis on the relationship between social agency and the value form in the works of Marx under the supervision of Catherine Malibu. He is a contributor to Zero Books' What is Postmodern Conservatism? Essays on our hugely tremendous times. Matt McManus is Professor of Politics and International Relations at the University of Tech de Monterrey, Mexico, where he teaches political science and theory. Before assuming this position, McManus worked for the Committee for International Justice and Accountability. He completed his PhD in 2017. He is the editor of What is Postmodern Conservatism? Essays on a Hugely Tremendous Times, published by Zero Books in 2020 as well as being the author of The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, Neoliberalism, Postmodern Culture, and Reactionary Politics. Marion Trejo is Professor of Politics and International Relations at Tech de Monterrey, Mexico. She completed her Bachelor's in International Relations at Tech de Monterrey and her Master's in Philosophy at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. I was joined for this conversation by Matt McManus and Marion Trejo. Matt McManus and Mary Trejo, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, thank you for inviting us. Yeah, thank you very much. We're happy to be here. Yeah, so to start things off, I imagine most listeners on this podcast will have heard of Jordan Peterson at this point, but just to make sure everyone's on the same page, and for that one listener who maybe hasn't, can you give us a quick introduction to who Jordan Peterson is? And more specifically for our conversation, why is a book-length critique, specifically a left-wing one, worth doing? Sure. So uh, Jordan Peterson, prior to his ascent to fame in the mid-2010s, uh, was a Canadian professor at the University of Toronto. Uh, he's probably most famous for his book, Maps of Meaning, 
which was released in the late 1990s, and a number of important scientific papers that he published in a variety of different psychological fields. Uh, he is also interesting since, unlike many academic people uh, in the field of you know, psychiatry and psychology, he actually engaged in clinical practice. Um, but in the mid-2010s, he became famous for his criticisms of identity politics, PC culture, uh, particularly trans language uh, bills, and also um, what he called postmodern neo-Marxism, which was a kind of neologism he developed to describe the new kind of left-wing movements that had emerged and which he saw as attacking many of the fundamental precepts of Western civilization. Um, so Slavoj Žižek famously debated Peterson in early 2019 and repeated a few of his comments there in an introduction for this book that we're talking about. Uh, he argues that Peterson's success depends on us occupying a very particular sort of social and cultural moment, but that Peterson himself ignores or diverts a lot of the actual antagonisms we're wrestling with into secondary or pseudo-debates. To explain what Zizek's position here is that he's getting at? Yeah, so Zizek, um, again, famously debated Peterson in 2019 after several prompts. Uh, some people consider it a fairly anticlimactic discussion because there was none of the kind of fireworks and barbs that you'd usually expect from such a kind of situation. But nonetheless, many of us found it productive. And we reached out to Professor Zizek who mentioned that he had more to say on this issue, and he was happy enough, uh, and we were lucky enough to get him to write the introduction to the book. But the general argument that Zizek makes is that we need to understand Peterson's reactions uh, in a broader context than just one Canadian professor who happens to not like activism and social justice uh, theory in a Canadian university. And the argument that he makes in the book is that the cultural and economic and political moment that we inhabit, uh, what I often at least term postmodern culture, is wrought with very fundamental tensions and antagonisms uh, related back to the contradictions inherent in late neoliberal capitalism. And rather than actually addressing these contradictions head on, what Peterson tends to focus on are the symptoms of our contemporary malaise. Uh, and it's not uh, necessarily dealing with the symptoms is problematic. Obviously, you know, when you have a cold, you need to deal with uh, the problems that come up. Uh, it's just that it's not tackling the underpinning root of the problem. So you start your own essay, and Conrad Hamilton does this quite a lot as well, um, looking at maps of meaning in quite a lot of detail. This book was both a look at some more kind of timeless questions about the human condition, but also was a way of trying to address certain political concerns Peterson had at the time he wrote it. So can you give us something of an overview of the text and the context it was intended to address? Sure. So maps of meaning uh, draws on Peterson's research for about 15 years. Uh, it was his magnum opus published in the late 1990s uh, and was apparently based on an earlier monograph uh, that he abandoned, uh, but a lot of the content wound up in this big book. Uh, and it's a challenging text um, that tuppers a panoramic number of topics. Uh, the first couple of chapters tend to deal with things like the nature of consciousness, the nature of human motivation, it covers things like why it is that human mythology has taken the form it has, 
uh, tries to look at different ways that mythologies code human motivations um, across a variety of different cultures and time periods. And then the later chapters of the book apply the kind of analytical framework Peterson developed earlier in the text to a number of more contemporary issues, particularly political issues. So he analyzes the roots of 20th century totalitarianism and evil, I should say, generally uh, in a number of different mythological figures, people like Dr. Faust, um, Milton Satan, uh, and then he analyzes some people who are actually far more alive uh, than these mythological figures, uh, including the Soviet totalitarians, the Nazis, and there's a bit of indirect references uh, to contemporary figures, uh, for instance, the social justice left, uh, but nothing that's as prominent as would appear in his later work, for instance, in 12 Rules for Life where he starts to extend this framework uh, to much, much more immediate concerns, uh, like the stuff that eventually made him famous. Maps of Meaning is, in a large part, an attempt to synthesize a variety of fields like phenomenology, existentialism, union psychology, theology, and evolution, uh, to come up with an account of how a conscious self emerges, how it functions or navigates its surroundings and processes information. This gives Peterson a rather unique account of the self, albeit, as you point out, with some gaps. So can you speak to Peterson's outline for a theory of subjectivity, as we might put it, as well as the way in which you feel the book kind of falls short in its synthetic attempts? Sure. I should say that, again, uh, psychiatry or cognitive science is not my field of specialization, uh, and it's not Marion's either. So there's a very brief kind of gesture to his theory of subjectivity in Myth and Mayhem. Uh, and actually, as far as I can see, a fair bit of it seems at least interesting uh, from a superficial standpoint. Although, as you pointed out, I also feel that it's subject to certain major problems. Generally speaking, I see Peterson, as he himself has said, as falling within the broadly pragmatic tradition uh, of theorists on the nature of consciousness and subjectivity. Uh, but pragmatism understood in a very broad sense. So this includes the American pragmatists, uh, figures like William James or Peirce, uh, but also figures who belong more uncomfortably in the tradition like Martin Heidegger. Uh, and one of the things that these figures stress is that we need to gradually get rid of the idea that consciousness is something like the Cartesian ego, at least in the simplistic sense of some kind of entity or ego that objectively perceives the world outside of it, or at least in a Kantian sense, establishes a transcendentally objective world uh, that anyone can universally apprehend. Instead, we need to appreciate consciousness more in terms of what it does actively in the world. Uh, and this is an insight that I would say Peterson draws from Heidegger, most particularly. Heidegger stressed that it's very important not to talk about there being a self before we talk about what it is that a being uh, with a body does. And these kinds of actions and engagements with the world ultimately produce a reaction uh, in the way somebody starts to conceive of their identity, uh, which is gradually shaped over time through their, given act their different actions. Uh, Peterson is well known for his critique of a number of social and political movements, although it can be hard to parse his critical stance together um, or parse these elements apart because he lumps in a number of disparate movements. 
Uh, but let's try anyways. So the core of much of his critique is against Marxism or something vaguely resembling Marxism. So can you artic- or explain how he articulates his anti-Marxist stance a bit? Well, I should say it's difficult to actually talk about how he articulates his Marxist stance without discussing the fundamental problems within his position. Uh, but the kind of loose narrative that he gives is that Marxism obviously emerged in the 19th century uh, as a philosophy of history that emphasized class conflict, uh, at least in Peterson's interpretation. But by the 1960s, because of the kind of butchery that was associated with the Soviet Union, according to Peterson, at least, Marxism fell into disrepute, uh, particularly amongst French intellectuals who felt that they couldn't just morally or conscionably carry on um, operating within the Marxist tradition. So what you saw figures like Derrida or Michel Foucault uh, and a variety of other groups, a really truly disney variety, I should say, do is replace or update the Marxist terminology, which emphasized class, uh, with terminology referring to power instead. Uh, and this was significant since they were no longer just focused on economic issues and ending economic inequality. The new terminology, which stressed an emphasis on power, allowed them to start interrogating virtually any sphere of life that you can imagine. Gendered spheres of life, sexual orientation, racial spheres of life, religion. Uh, and Peterson obviously reacts very strongly against that. Yeah, so you and Conrad Hamilton, again, also go into a lot of detail with his engagement with uh, postmodernism, which, as you pointed out, um, Peterson kind of lumps it in together with Marxism. So can you uh, maybe unpack not just like how he lumps them together, but why that might be problematic? Of course. So uh, I should say again that there's no doubt that Marxism had an influence on postmodern theory. Uh, and postmodern theory in a lot of different iterations. And to some extent, you could almost say, how could it not, given the ubiquity of Marxism as a theoretical analytic through the 19th and the 20th century? But what's important to note when we talk about this influence is that a lot of it was primarily negative. So you saw many of these postmodern theorists reacting very strongly against what they saw as the presuppositions of Marxism and trying to develop new frameworks uh, that deviated from it in very, very substantial ways, at least as substantial as the differences that you'd see between other theoretical traditions. Uh, so to just give a few examples, you know, Michel Foucault uh, certainly was not in a position uh, where he had to reject Marxism in the 1960s when he started writing his most famous books. Uh, the French Communist Party was extremely prominent at that point. There were a number of very, very influential French Marxist theorists who were writing at the time. Probably the most important is... Uh, Louis Althusser uh, and Etienne Balibar, uh, their book Reading Capital. And Foucault reacted very strongly against what he saw as the hegemony of Marxism in the human sciences. And his earlier work starts to deviate from Marxism in very fundamental ways to try to find a new way of analyzing power relations rather than just class relations. Uh, and by the time he hits the 1970s, one of the ironies is that Foucault identifies himself more strongly with Nietzsche. Uh, than he does with any strand of Marxism. And of course, Peterson himself is very heavily influenced by Nietzsche. Uh, and what I mean by this is that Foucault is determined to engage not in just analysis of power relations uh, that focuses on how it is that we can emancipate human subjects, uh, but on a genealogy uh, of the way different forms of knowledge identi- or, sorry, are engendered 
uh, in society and in our various ways of doing things. Uh, and you can tell a similar story about Jacques Derrida, right? Jacques Derrida, uh, while he claimed in the 1990s to be kind of operating in a certain spirit of Marxism, was initially a lot more influenced by figures uh, like Saussure uh, or Heidegger, interestingly enough, another figure who Peterson himself uh, leans upon very heavily, uh, Edmund Husserl, the Jewish tradition. Uh, and the early Derrida is actually not very interested in politics. Uh, it was something that he was quite well, uh, like infamously criticized for through the 1970s and the 1980s, when there is a bit of a turn to those concerns. Uh, you know, the early Derrida is concerned with the nature of language, uh, the nature of human relations that are framed by language, uh, but it's at a much more metaphysically uh, and philosophically abstract level than what you would associate with Marxism, which has always prided itself on being a kind of theory of praxis. Another movement Peterson has been critical of is feminism, which he also links back at various times to postmodern neo-Marxism. And Marianne, you kind of took this up mostly in your own contributions. So can you unpack the core of Peterson's critique of feminism and some of the problematic assumptions he has built into that critique? Yeah, sure. Um, well, firstly, um, I think the core of Peterson's um, most kind of academic critique, if you want to call it that way, has to do with uh, gender, right? Gender differentiation between uh, of like a feminist approach of trying to differentiate gender from sex. Uh, although I have to say that Peterson kind of assumes that this is a an assumption that a lot of feminists do where well it's not true uh but like peterson basically takes an issue with this right the fact that um there's like sex and gender he says they are not the same right like uh, sorry they are the same and that sex determines like these gender differences and therefore these inequalities that emerge are natural right what we call like the naturalization of gender or i um call it uh, that, right? The fact that he says, well, like a feminist, and this is when he takes on, on feminism rather as a political movement, right? Uh, feminists are wrong in saying that we should fight or like strive to end like gender inequalities because they are not socially created. They are the product of something that comes natural, right? So uh, how can we like aspire to change something that was given by nature, right? Like we should just like uh, sometimes uh, he says embrace it, right? And even construct social orders that are built on those differences, right? Uh, that's why I called Peterson in my own piece like reactionary, right? Because he's not only saying like uh, things should not change, he's also saying like things sh should go back to a previous uh, moment in time where they were more order, right? And when he makes reference to like clear gender distinct, like tr clear, sorry, uh, social roles made and differentiated on the basis of gender. So um, another issue t he takes on feminism that I should uh, say it's not only an issue with feminism, but also with uh, other types of social justice, uh, you know, people is when he says that uh, the role this... Uh, activists have in universities right like he sees this as a threat he even compares this uh, sometimes glimpses with comparing this with totalitarianism right which i think is is very dangerous um 
And he says, well, this is taking over campus uh, uh, worldwide in Canada and uh, in the Western world, right? And finally, linked to this, he says, uh, this comes with another process that's uh, the uh, uh, feminization of males. That what he says that this is the project, the ultimate project of feminists, right? Like uh, that we want to convert or to erase any masculine traits on men, traits sorry on men, and just make them more like women, right? Which is uh, relating this story to my critique in the book is precisely uh, my first and. Um, critique, and I think the most important one is that Peterson basically construes like feminism as a single movement, right? As a single movement that has also like a unique and homogeneous like body also of thought, right? And set of ideas that are, uh, that are equal to any like feminist, that, that any person that ascribes as a feminist, right? And I think that's deeply problematic because within feminism there, are, feminism, there are a lot of movements, right? A lot of dissent about gender, a lot of dissent about like sex, and also a lot of dissent about masculinity and uh, the role of men, for example, not only in feminism, but in society in general. So although Peterson often says that he's not an anti-feminist, I do argue that he is because um, he just says that his issue is with radical feminism, while at the same time disregards any feminist concern at all, right? Like uh, under whatever type of feminism you want to label it, he is uh, totally opposed to that, so I think um, I think again this relates back to what Matt was saying about how he often mislabels and misconstrues like sorry construes this like stromance, right? So I think that for him it's very easy to construct like this or oh, radical feminism is wrong, is an evil, right? So that because that allows uh, him to be very anti-feminist by saying that he's just against radical feminism, when in reality he's just against any uh, type of feminism and any type of uh, feminist agenda. So that's, I think, that um, the the center of my critique why I provide, as as you already mentioned, like other, other important points. Uh, I also mentioned the fact that he naturalizes these gender differences, which I also think is problematic. And this relates back to Matt's critique and also Conrad's critique, right? He um, disregards the fact that as human beings capable of uh, building and having a culture or different cultures, right? Like we are able to transcend nature, right? And in that respect, of course, we are able to transcend like uh, the difference that come from sex. In a couple essays, both Matt McManus's and Conrad Hamilton's, a rather admirable effort is put forward to unpack Peterson's politics and the way they emerge out of his more theoretical work. Peterson himself claims to be a classical liberal, and running in parallel to that is a sort of implicit endorsement of a sort of individualistic capitalist subject. So can you unpack this aspect of his worldview? 
Well, I have to say, like a number of other features of Peterson's politics, it's actually a little difficult to pin him down on this one, because though he identifies as a classical liberal, he doesn't refer to many of the traditional sources uh, or to many of the traditional themes that you would expect would be associated uh, with that kind of position. Uh, you know, his interest in tradition, his interest in religion uh, as a kind of source of meaning, the kind of heavy emphasis on myth, uh, you know, all this runs problematically uh, in the tradition of classical liberalism, which tended to emphasize the importance of secularism, the division uh, of mythology or church and state, uh, and a growing endorsement of people separating themselves uh, from more ancient ways of thinking about things. Uh, the way I've often characterized Peterson as actually as a supporter of what's sometimes called ordered liberty, uh, which is a species of classical liberalism, uh, but one which also emphasizes, a la somebody like Edmund Burke, uh, the importance of tradition, social hierarchy, uh, what are sometimes called little brigades, things like the church, um, various other enterprises that provide meaning and social relations in people's lives. And I think you'd fit more comfortably uh, with that designation or in that kind of category uh, than he would as a classical liberal, as somebody like Locke or even somebody like F.A. Hayek today. Um, what we criticize him for in his politics uh, related to this, his more substantive politics, is that he doesn't really engage with many of the formidable arguments that have been made against the free market dogmas um, that many classical liberals and proponents of ordered liberty uh, today to just be self-evidently true. Uh, and the interesting thing is, of course, many of these critiques have come from liberals themselves, people like Amartya Sen, John Rawls, Martha Nosebaum, uh, as well as people like Marx, of course, who were very familiar, I should say, uh, with the liberal tradition uh, and the various arguments made in favor of capitalism. Uh, but the kind of basis of my objection is that if you look at somebody like John Rawls, he emphasizes the fact that liberalism more than anything else is supposed to be about treating people as moral equals. Uh, and if you're going to treat people as moral equals, you can't just ask whether society is producing a lot of goods. You also have to ask whether they're being distributed in a fair manner. And the locus of my critique of capitalism and my critique of Peterson indirectly uh, is that he doesn't really take fairness to be a very central issue of concern, even though most contemporary liberals would say that it needs to be put at the center of the agenda. Because if you live in a society where certain people are given tremendous advantages relative to other, whether by nature or because of their social situatedness, uh, it's hard to say that the society which would emerge, given these kind of initial advantages, is fair uh, let alone that it's some kind of meritocracy, which Peterson often claims that it is, you know, or, or competence hierarchy. Because a meritocracy would presuppose that people start from relative initial conditions of fairness and equality, uh, and then they compete with one another to try to get ahead. Uh, whereas what we have right now, of course, is that some people start off with immense advantages, others start off with immense disadvantages, uh, and we're telling both of them to try to run at the same speed to get to the same kind of endpoint. And I simply do not think that that's right. And I think many other liberals would agree with that. And I would contend that Peterson needs to spend a lot more time engaging with these kinds of objections than he has.
Beneath the more classical liberal version of Peterson you've been speaking to, you and Hamilton detect hints of a more reactionary strain of thought that undergirds his work, although it only appears in fragments, and from some of his influences, many of whom have problematic baggage that he refuses to check or kind of filter through. So can you unpack this element of his politics? Well, it's an element of... It's an element that sometimes comes out in many kind of ordered liberty conservatives. Uh, And there's typically a tension in the works of figures like Edmund Burke or Russell Kirk or even Frank Meyer, uh, where they support liberty, but every now and then they're concerned about the fallen stature of modernity and its permissiveness uh, leads them to support more draconian positions. Uh, And as you pointed out, this doesn't really come out overtly in Peterson all that often, But you see elements of it uh, at points, for instance, where he describes our contemporary period as one that's hurtling towards a more totalitarian system of organization. Uh, You know, that and blames progressive forces for that, uh, particularly social justice activists concerned with uh, sexual equality, gender equality, um, to a lesser extent, racial equality, and so on and so forth. And he says these people are essentially uh, trying to manipulate the system in order to get ahead when they haven't necessarily earned it. Uh, or he'll say things like, well, they're trying to prevent individuals from speaking out against them by engaging in these incredible acts uh, to undermine free speech. And I think that this doesn't look at all the good that many of these movements have accomplished, uh, particularly for people who have been historically marginalized over the course of many centuries or millennia, in the case of women. Uh, And it takes a very one-sided view that's paranoid about the consequences for hierarchies uh, in our society that Peterson cherishes very deeply. And a more holistic interpretation of what's going on would say, like anything else, uh, that these political movements have good sides and bad sides, mostly good sides, I would say, uh, and chastise them for going too far in some instances. Uh, The other thing where I think Peterson is concerning uh, when it comes to his more reactionary inclinations is the way that he doesn't actually want to address inequality uh, or take inequality seriously as a determinant of the kind of instability and uncertainty that we see in the postmodern condition. Uh, And what I mean by that is political economists going back to Marx, or for that matter, even Adam Smith, talked about how capitalism was a revolutionary mode of production, as it was called, uh, that's upending traditional ways of doing things, that's changing the way people relate to one another very dramatically, uh, that is shifting people away from an emphasis on religion and local community uh, towards humanism and an emphasis on global integration. And Peterson is concerned about all of these developments uh, and the impact they're having on the sense of meaning that people get from traditional hierarchies. And yet in no way, shape or form is he willing to blame capitalism or suggest that capitalism has anything to do with this phenomenon. It's a lot easier to sit there and point at a number of social justice activists and tenured university professors at elite schools in the United States than actually confront the problem Um, because that would challenge one of the sacred dogmas that he holds dear, and I think he should. I think that his work would be a lot more interesting and a lot more comprehensive if he wasn't willing to insulate political economy from criticism the way that he does. And it displays a reactionary inclination 
because of this desire to preserve the capitalist hierarchy as it stands, uh, while still chastising the impact that it's having, but pinning the blame on other groups uh, that are actually working to try to secure emancipation for traditionally marginalized groups. One of the most famous aspects of Peterson's output has been some passages from early in 12 Rules for Life about lobsters. And if I'm not mistaken, each essay in this book, including Zizek's introduction, uh, takes some of these passages up to critically examine them. So what is Peterson saying in these passages? And what do your, you and your co-authors take issue with regarding the kind of lobster metaphor? Well, in some ways, I have no problems with the lobster metaphor, right? Lobsters do what they do, uh, and that's fine. Uh, you know, have at it as far as I'm concerned. What we're concerned about, and again, this is another ambiguity in his work that's never clarified all that often, is the way he appeals to these kinds of natural phenomena to try to suggest that hierarchies uh, in the contemporary world are both natural uh, and inevitable in their current form. And there's not really much of an argument for this. Uh, he just kind of says, it's not the patriarchy, it's not capitalism, it's not socialism. Hierarchy is just an inbuilt fact of life. Uh, and it's not clear what we're supposed to infer from that. Um, my suspicion is he's just kind of saying this to provide his supporters with some kind of ideological justification for whatever hierarchies they happen to cherish. Uh, and the reason it's not much of an argument for anything is I simply do not know of any progressive thinker anywhere ever uh, who's argued that there should be no hierarchies in society. Uh, you know, Marx certainly believed that there should be hierarchies of organization within the socialist movement. Anarchists argue that there should be horizontal uh, or fluid hierarchies that exist in anarchic societies uh, to stimulate social organization and to distribute goods effectively. Feminists argue that there should be certain forms of hierarchy as long as they're you know, not uh, dominated by patriarchy. And the question that's always guided progressivism hasn't been, should there be a hierarchy? It's what kind of hierarchies do we need in our society right now? Can they be justified? And is it possible to replace hierarchies that are coercive or no longer necessary with those that would be more emancipatory or efficient uh, or fair uh, or any other number of normative uh, or associated with any other number of normative qualities? So when you say things like, well, the lobsters have hierarchies, hierarchy is inevitable, uh, you should just stop complaining, I'm not actually sure what he's really trying to argue for, because I don't think anybody disagrees that hierarchies are inevitable and that they're necessary, where the disagreement lies is on what kind of hierarchies uh, should be supported. Uh, and Peterson never really makes an argument for why the particular hierarchies he cherishes are valid or can withstand the kind of scrutiny that would be offered by formidable intellectual opponents. Uh, whether formidable feminists or people like John Rawls, who I already mentioned, uh, he just kind of waves this example in the air uh, and tries to dismiss all those kind of criticisms without really much substance being behind this contention. I'm sorry, Mary, I think wanted to chime in off. No, I, I just wanted to say that, yeah, as Matt pointed out, is I don't think it's an argument really, more like what he believes to be just less a fact of nature that applies to lobsters and therefore without uh, providing any uh, reason and justification on why he says that that fact of nature that applies to lobsters also applies to to us, right? To, to like our human hierarchies. Um, and I think he does it right. And this is also 
out of my own speculation after reading Peterson is he does this to kind of as a pseudo scientific argument, right? Because in 12 Proofs for Life, he says, well, if you don't believe me, just believe all the uh, evolutionary biologists that are behind these, right? And uh, something is that I think is important to point out that even in evolutionary biology, uh, there is not a consensus about uh, hierarchies and etc. But aside from that, I, I think is a way of um, presenting his political project, which is basically, and as Matt already pointed out, uh, depoliticizing a lot of issues that we need to argue about that are necessary for us, our society to improve if we want it to improve, to argue about. And what he does is displays these issues, depoliticize them, right, by just saying, well, this is a natural hierarchy and not providing any argument at all on why it applies also to us, like the same argument that's valid for the lobster is also valid for us. Yeah, and I should just conclude by saying uh, we're not the first persons to make this kind of contention, right? Uh, I mean, in some ways, what Peterson is doing by talking about the lobster hierarchy is inviting those who support the kind of traditionalist politics he does to project uh, their own support for hierarchy onto it and to suppose that this is an argument for whatever it is that they support. Um, but there have been a number of commentators, you know, my friend Ben Burgess, who's also an author of the book, uh, Nathan J. Robinson, the editor of Current Affairs, who pointed out that if all you're doing is saying hierarchy is natural and inviting people to project uh, support for whatever hierarchy they happen to cherish into it, then any number of figures uh, could do that successfully, including those that we don't necessarily like. Uh, people who support the feudal system could say, well, the system that exists right now is natural. Uh, God established it to be this way, or we can look at the animal kingdom and see that there's always a social order. Why should you be compelled to say that? You know, people who support racial hierarchies could say, well, there are hierarchies in nature. Why are you trying to disrupt the natural order of things? Uh, now, Peterson, of course, doesn't support any positions that are that uh, extreme or absurd. Uh, it's just that it's not clear just on the basis of this example what he's actually trying to argue for, because it's so ambiguous uh, that you'd need a much more stringent argument for what specific hierarchies he's trying to naturalize and suggest are useful and beneficial uh, in order to kind of make the analogy uh, or make the uh, example function well. The final essay in the book by Ben Burgess, as you just said, looks at Peterson via what he calls the Hitchens effect. So what is the Hitchens effect and how does it help us better understand the Peterson phenomena? Yeah, so Ben Burgess, uh, who's a good friend of ours um, and a great writer, I should say, um, was a big fan of Christopher Hitchens for a long time, who, as many might point out, uh, was initially a left-wing writer. Uh, he sometimes characterized himself as a very conservative communist up until about the 2000s when he somewhat bewilderingly started to support um, the Iraq war uh, and various other kind of neoconservative policies. And one of the things that was interesting about Christopher Hitchens is because he presented himself not necessarily uh, as a partisan, but as a figure who was kind of above all of these things, people are able to project onto them any number, onto him any number of reactionary positions that they happen to have, and find ideological support for them. And it's been a long time since I've read Ben's book, and I certainly don't want to speak our essay, and I don't want to speak for him. Uh, but my understanding of it is that 
Peterson is doing something similar uh, with a lot of his commentary, which is ambiguous enough to invite figures to project onto him any number of reactionary views that they might happen to have, while being ambiguous enough that he can deflect uh, from those that he doesn't actually want to be associated with. Uh, and it's unfortunate because, like Hitchens, he's a charismatic speaker and an intelligent man and a good writer, and so he's not necessarily going to be caught out for a lot of these tricks uh, because he expresses them with enough subtlety and with enough rhetorical power that people are kind of overwhelmed before they have a chance to kind of call him out for it. To close things off, at several points in the book, you and your co-authors argue that there is a lesson today, even for the most ardent leftists and progressives, to be found in the Peterson phenomena, although it's not the one he intended. What should progressives take away from the last several years of Peterson's meteoric rise to fame? What does it say about our current cultural moment that he was able to emerge in the way that he did and what the left needs to offer in its own political vision to capture people in the way he has? Well, I think there's a number of things that people can take away from Peterson uh, and particularly the leftists. Uh, One is that people are clearly hungry for the kind of grand meta-narratives that postmodern theorists like Derrida or Foucault uh, thought we had grown out of. And I don't think this is necessarily a surprise uh, because as we live in an increasingly secular age that's defined by incredible precarity, uh, whether you're talking about growing income inequality, job precarity specifically, uh, and now the COVID-19 virus, and grand narratives or meta-narratives can provide a sense of security that very few other things can, aside from more immediate human relations. And what David Harvey calls militant particularism, which are the forms of identity politics, uh, which emerged in the 1980s, and uh, kind of overtook the new left, have achieved tremendous advantage, uh, advances for many marginalized people, but they haven't provided that sense of universal meaning that I think many individuals are hungry for. And I'm hoping that the left will look at the Peterson phenomena and say that maybe it's a time for a return uh, to some of this good old-fashioned universalism uh, and kind of grand theorizing. And I think you're seeing individuals beginning to do that. You know, Slava Zizek himself is a very good example, never been one to kind of shy away uh, from a grand narrative and a kind of tremendous sense of meaning uh, when, you know, it's available. I think people like Michael Brooks with his kind of cosmopolitan socialism, as argued for in his new book, Against the Web, is doing a very good job uh, kind of rejuvenating some ideas that have been out of place for a long time. Uh, And I think that there are other figures like Ben Burgess, uh, who we mentioned, or Wendy Brown, uh, who are also doing fantastic work in this guard. The other thing that I think the left can take away from the Peterson phenomena uh, was well articulated in Mark Fisher's essay, Exiting the Vampire Castle. Uh, And Exiting the Vampire Castle talks about the kind of negative impact of call-out culture, uh, PC rhetoric, uh, and the way that it turns many people off of left-wing politics, because even if they're attracted to the substance of what the left is doing uh, or arguing for, many people just find it nasty, puritanical, uh, kind of operating with a priest's desire to excommunicate. And there's been some exaggeration about how big a problem this is uh, by the political right and right-wing media, including from Peterson himself. But I don't think there is any denying that it can be a problem and it does lose the left a lot of converts that they might be able to successfully turn to progressive politics. So I think following Fisher, what we need to see the left do is exit the vampire castle, 
be more forgiving, more funny, uh, more inclusive, more willing to tolerate ideological difference, uh, and also just more savvy, uh, more willing to tread into realms that it wasn't before in order to try to do battle uh, and win people over, uh, rather than necessarily just chiding those who disagree with us. And I think if that were to happen, even Peterson uh, might give us a little bit of a credit for some of the improvements that we've made. Although, who knows? I'm maybe a little skeptical about that. Yeah, and Matt summarized it uh, very well, but I just wanted to say that in the case specifically of feminism, uh, although, of course, I um, disagree with Peterson's critiques, and as Matt pointed out, I think he makes broad exaggerations. Uh, one of the points that I think Gijek very... Uh, that that makes in the introduction that's very good is he says that Peterson is at, it's at his most dangerous when he partially tells the truth, right? Or when he tells the truth, but like gives it like this kind of twist. And I think this is uh, why we should be paying attention to, right? What allows him to be the figure he is, like as famous as he is, to have the supporters he have, right? And I think because... Be- behind and underneath all of those like um lack of arguments he is expressing some discontent right and i think that at least feminists have to engage with that type of discontent because it's certainly not only peterson's it's like the discontent of a lot of men and women that as already mentioned have a feel uh for the way uh feminism engages uh, with some issues, especially with the role of men in the movement, right, that they feel alienated and that they feel that they don't belong and they also perceive that um, th- there is this militant approach for them to not belong, right? So I think uh, if we can, can take those lessons and reflect critically about them, then we can be all like politics on the left that are more engaging and that can be um, be less probably angry and more, as Matt said, and as Mark Fisher pointed out, more funny and more creative and that can actually feel like a, a better like world if it will it's only in the small actions, you know? And this is why we decided to write, going back to your first question, a book-length critique of Peterson uh, for all the previous mentioned reasons. Yeah, I guess I'll just, I'll finish uh, on that comment. Uh, one of the things that I didn't point out uh, that Marion uh, wisely gestured to was, we also think that it's important for leftists to actually engage far more seriously with the ideas of their ideological opponents. Uh, now, this isn't to say that there aren't leftists who have done tremendous work uh, actually criticizing conservatism. There historically always have been. Uh, but there's this tendency, certainly when engaging with Peterson's work, to look more at what he does and says or how he's perceived than treating him like you would any other academic, going through his major works, analyzing where they have strengths and weaknesses, and trying to build a sustained case against them. And... We wanted to do something that was much more in the latter camp. So we took Peterson seriously. We acknowledge where he thinks that he makes some interesting points, for instance, in his theory of consciousness. Uh, and we also tried to point out in a very, in a comparatively rigorous way where we think he goes wrong and how the left can answer him from an intellectual standpoint. 
And we do certainly hope that the book is interesting in this regard. We try to make it accessible uh, while at the same time maintaining a level of quality that you would expect from um, people who are, intend are uh, interested in being serious intellectuals. Well, that brings us kind of through the whole book. So as a final question, we always like to ask our guests if they're working on anything or have anything coming up. So do either of you two have anything you'd like to plug or um, do either of your co-authors that you know of have anything coming up? Uh, yeah, so I have a new book that'll be coming out with Palgrave Macmillan either later this year or early next year. Uh, that's called Liberalism and Liberal Rights, A Critical Legal Argument. Uh, it's a much more academic-y kind of book than this one uh, that goes through the history of liberalism, argues for where liberalism went right, uh, and also tries to develop a more democratic and egalitarian uh, like alternative uh, to the limitations of liberal discourse. Uh, and I know my friend Ben uh, would like to point out that he has a new book that's going to be coming out soon. That's a sequel to his text, Give Them an Argument. Uh, that's also going to be discussing how to create a funnier, more engaged, uh, and more interesting left. And it should be released with zero books later this year, I think. Uh, and Conrad Hamilton is working on a book on video games uh, and critical theory. I don't believe it has a title yet, but... We expect that there should be an announcement for when it'll be released in a couple of months. And, uh... Yeah, I haven't uh, have pointed out something definitive yet, but uh, myself, I, uh, given the current situation and the fact that we're quarantined, right, I'm uh, working on politics of fear, and I wanted to relate that to basically this uh, worldwide hysteria and uh, what happens in these kind of moments of emergency and how fear plays a role, how fear is a mechanism on the side of the government, but also on the side of the people, right? To uh, govern subjects and to create certain type of subjects. I should say also, uh, the kind of funny thing is, I had no idea how timely your project would become since uh, shortly after she decided to start working on this, the COVID crisis came and I was like, Oof, a little too close to the home, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, perfect timing. So, Marianne Trejo and Mac McManus, thank you so much for being with us. Of course. Thank you very much. Thank you.